Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Coronavirus Update. If you're in lockdown, just like me, don't worry. I've put together some of the best bits from my talk radio breakfast show into this daily podcast, so you won't miss any of the day's biggest coronavirus updates. Enjoy and stay safe. Online, on DAB and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. So I should say, it, you know, Robert Buckland it does join us right now. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Well, let's I mean, obviously if we're going to get on to coronavirus. I think you would expect that. But let's talk about this uh, bill that's coming into Parliament. What does it plan to do? Yes, well, the bill has uh, several parts. Uh, if you remember, we announced it uh, back uh, earlier this year after the appalling Streatham incident that came on top of the Fishmongers Hall atrocity. And clearly we felt that there was a need now to uh, change the approach and to improve and refine the approach that we take to uh, terrorists and terrorist offences. So the bill will contain a number of measures to tighten up sentences at the top end of terrorist activity and planning attacks akin to the Manchester bombing atrocity, for example, where we will see a minimum sentence of 14 years uh, in some instances and then a longer licence period. That's the period during which offenders can be uh, monitored by the authorities and brought back to prison if they breach those licence conditions. I think that gives a much uh, higher degree of uh, control and a longer period over which we can uh, monitor these individuals, some of whom harbour their hatreds for many, many years, as we have Um, seen. Isn't there a bit of a concern, though, that uh, a lot lot of people might be very supportive of this and that that I would have thought that these are the sort of minimum jail terms we should have had for many, many many, uh, uh, years, that actually this is only going to affect a tiny, tiny number of terrorists? Well, mercifully, the number of terrorists, of course, in our society is a small one, and uh, the the number of offenders uh, will be small. They're an exceptional group of people, many of whom are just not capable of rehabilitation, despite the most sophisticated and best efforts of the authorities. And we've got to acknowledge that. And in this bill, we're doing that by creating new sentences that, in my view, fill the gap between what we'll call uh, normal sentences, where there's a release and then... Uh, the end of the sentence and a life sentence where of course you're on a life license which is reserved for very serious crimes of murder etc i think this fills the gap we're also evolving the T-PIM system, you know, the what used to be called control orders then, T-PIMs. We're evolving that system as well and refining that and improving that. So where, for example, a prosecution is not possible, we will be able to use those types of order as well to monitor and control people okay. in the community. 
All right, we sure will look forward to seeing how that develops in the House of Commons. Let's now talk, though, about, obviously, the subject that is concerning everybody every single day, 24 hours, and that is the handling of the pandemic. It does appear, looking at uh, what's been happening over the last 24 hours, that the blame game has begun uh, with scientists pointing the fingers at uh, politicians, politicians pointing the fingers at scientists, uh, local government pointing the finger at the central government, central government at local government, care homes to the NHS, NHS to the government. It's going all the way around in circles. Um is it now the time to admit that, and I've said this so many times to many cabinets, with the best will in the world, given where we started from, an unprecedented pandemic in this country, that mistakes have been made and we need to learn the lessons from them and we need to move forward to make sure that we can save as many lives as possible? Well, look, the first thing I think I'd say, Julia, is that uh, having a blame game it doesn't do anybody any good at all. And I'm not going to point the finger at other people and somehow you know, blame them uh, for what has happened. You know, uh, there's nobody actually here to blame. We're dealing with a silent uh, menace, a virus that uh, developed from uh, out of nowhere. The knowledge and our understanding of that virus has constantly evolved. You know, what we knew about it back in February, March, is totally different now uh, from where we are in May. And we'll know more about it by June. And I think it's right to note that government is bound to evolve its position. It may well you know, take actions back in February, March that, uh, you know, looking at the evolving position, now it has to uh, change and refine. And government will constantly be questioning itself and asking whether that particular approach is the right one. And there will okay. be changes and, and uh, you know, movements. But I, I think we just need to be honest about that. And, and, of course, we're not alone. You know, every other country in the Western world has been facing this. And uh, we've all been trying to uh, adapt for our own particular requirements. But, you know, frankly, this is a massive challenge. Uh, and I think it's far better to say that we're doing the best we can. Uh, yes, there are going to be times of frustration, but we are uh, all working together to beat this virus. OK, we say we're all working together, but there are a lot of concerns. There have been ongoing concerns about uh, PPE. And uh, OK, we know all governments around the world have been facing the same problems to a greater or lesser extent. But in terms of decisions to, for instance, abandon uh, tracking and tracing, we now know that you know, the cat is out of the bag. Man. It wasn't a scientific medical decision based on, oh, well, there's no point doing it because other countries doing better than us in handling deaths are actually con and did actually continue to test and trace. The decision was based on the basis we don't have the lab capacity. We can't carry it out. Public Health England haven't. Uh, expanded enough and so you couldn't actually do it so in retrospect was that a mistake no i mean we took a decision to focus on the nhs uh, and whilst we were absolutely weren't you know focusing on the nhs to the detriment of every other sector but you were that's the problem isn't it you were no, we, we, we weren't. The, the, that, that but why, no, but why does focusing on the NHS mean you can't do testing and tracing as well? Why does focusing on the NHS mean that you can't help care homes? Why does focusing on the NHS mean you can't get PPE for care homes? I, do, I think a lot of people listening right now who want to support the government, they're not out. This isn't just bashing for the sake of it and gotcha journalism or anything. This is just, we don't understand why focusing on the NHS means that everything else has to go by the wayside. Uh, look, I accept the, the point you're making, but I don't accept that everything else went by the wayside. I think, yes, clearly, for example, with PPE, we needed to coordinate more effectively. And, of course, we're doing that now with Lord Dighton and the coordination. Uh, as you say, it was a world challenge. And there were other areas, for example, on testing. We didn't have, like the Germans, that big diagnostic uh, base that we could just adapt. We had to make some choices. If we uh, you know, said, look, never mind about the NHS, it's going to be fine, and 
then the whole thing had fallen over, we would have been absolutely vilified, and rightly so. We had to make some choices. At the same time, looking at the care sector uh, uh, position, I think it's interesting to note that actually the number of admissions to care homes from the NHS was going down from February to April. Uh, and actually the people coming back into care homes, 95% of them were residents already. And of course, we've heard so many over the so many years, the importance of getting elderly people out of hospitals. You know, you've heard it yourself. I've had my own experience where we've been told, get them out of hospital, get them back into a care home because they're probably going to be safer. Um, this virus clearly has had a devastating effect on some of our care homes. Let's not uh, beat around the bush. But I do think that, you know, it's important that rather than uh, point of fingers, we all say, right, how can we do better? How can we constantly improve our approach to this? And government is not alone in that. And I okay, think all but, of us, but, you know, but you can't, you can't do better if you don't know where the problems are. Um, I'm, I know time's against us, so I do apologise for interrupting uh, uh, Ms. Butler. But um, let's talk about primary schools going back, because it, it, yeah. now the BMA is saying they've dropped their opposition, but an awful, you've even got a Tory council now saying doubts over that June the 1st date. Be <clears> concerned being that, and even expressed by Dame Angela McLean, the Deputy Chief Scientific Advisor, that actually, you know, you need the test and tracking app and everything in place, supposed to have been in place already about a week ago, not in place yet, and still doubtful whether it's properly in place by the beginning of June, before schools can go back. Are primary schools going to go back without that tracking, you know, testing, tracking and tracing system in place? Well, look, I'm, I'm seeing uh, across the sector uh, a lot of um, employers and primary schools uh, developing what they regard as a safe system, uh, bringing staff with them, working together to make sure that that can be done by the 1st of June. I think that's great. I understand the concerns of other employers who might not feel that that's right for them. The important thing is that that dialogue goes on. The Education Secretary continues to engage with the unions and with others to make sure that we can uh, uh, meet the 1st of June uh, 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 the aspiration that we set out. Uh, I think we're tracking and taste, uh, to tracking and testing. Uh, we are developing very, very quickly. We've now got 21,000 volunteers who are going to be able to do this. They're getting their training. I think the truth is with tracing that this will develop. You know, we'll start with uh, uh, those volunteers. We'll see the app that is being piloted in the Isle of Wight being developed. Uh, I think that over the next few weeks and months, we'll see that increase in its range and its sophistication. But we've got to start somewhere. And I think you, you would have been rightly criticising the government if we sort of, uh, you know, failed to set out even a roadmap as to what the recovery looks like. And you just said to me, well, why aren't you giving me a date? And I think, therefore, you know, setting the 1st of June, the 4th of July as those milestones was a very important thing to do because it meant that we everybody could work towards it and plan yeah. accordingly. No, I think we all understand that. Everyone listening will understand that. I just think people are concerned that these things weren't got in place uh, at an earlier time, given of all the, you know, there's not any one member of staff who's dealing with all these things. Different people could be put in charge. You do have an army of tens of thousands of people and indeed a, a military that could perhaps have done this. Um, meanwhile, as MPs are going into recess today, uh, bank holiday next Monday, big question mark about whether MPs should be going into recess. Love you to t uh, tackle that. But also, I'm sure you want to welcome also the decision for Captain, now Honorary Colonel Tom Moore, uh, to get a knighthood for his services not just in raising money for the NHS, but raising all our spirits as well. Well, indeed, I mean, Tom Moore epitomises the best of what it is to be British. I mean, his his uh, uh, um, efforts to raise that, that huge amount of money for NHS charities, I think, are just the crowning glory of an extraordinary life. I mean, he served his country. He's a man who bears himself with dignity. Uh, I, I love the interviews that you and others have had with him. Uh, I just think he's not just raised our spirits, but reminded ourselves of the, what was often known as the greatest generation, but of who we can be in future. 
future. And I think we owe a huge debt of thanks to Tom Moore for everything he's done. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. I decided to get in touch with uh, local MPs to find out, well, was it actually the case uh, that uh, most uh, parents were not uh, wanting to go back to uh, uh, schools in Bury? And indeed, uh, the claim that we also had from uh, Tamur Tariq, uh, when I asked him, was he sure that every single child in every school, primary and secondary in uh, uh, Bury, were actually getting uh, a full online education that many other top schools in the country are providing? And he said, yes, they were. Well, let's put those questions to James Daly. He's a Conservative MP, one of two MPs for uh, Berry, he's for Berry North, and he joins us now. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Um, we told him the decision was made by Berry Council, and this letter was written by Tamor Tariq, but that's not quite the full story, is it? Well, the letter was um, uh, emanated from the the cabinet of the council. Um, it wasn't a decision that passed through the normal democratic processes within Berry Council, so it was a, it was a decision of the cabinet. Okay, so they didn't actually sort of get a vote from the whole council, um, and there, uh, and in inter- well, just, just to say that, Julie, there wasn't a vote. There wasn't um, democratic scrutiny by councillors. Uh, opposition councillors were not informed of the letter, and I, as one of the members of parliament, um, was not consulted. Okay, and and of course, uh, one of the points I kept making to Tamur Tariq was that, and I, he was very angry that I'd called uh, in a tweet the day before Berry Council a bunch of idiots for making a decision which was not I mean, not for disagreeing with the government. They're entitled to do that, but they were basically saying they knew better on the scientific and medical advice than, for instance, the World Health Organization chief scientific advisor, chief medical officer, and uh, and uh, he said no, they they had their own uh, medical and scientific advice. Is that true? Well, I, um, I'm still awaiting a briefing from Berry Council as to the basis uh, upon which the letter was written. But certainly within the letter, there's no reference to the scientific evidence upon which it is, it is based. 
Um, you know, head teachers, schools, parents have very legitimate concerns regarding the opening of schools. But my my, you know, one of the main points in respect of this is for us all that if letters like that are going to be sent out, surely we should have the full reasoning or the the evidence base upon which um, the the decision has been made. Um, I mean, this is the thing. The question mark is whether this decision was made for the safety of the children and the teachers at Berry schools, which would be an understandable move, or whether this was just a party political point scoring move. Well, I, I mean, I can't comment in respect to that. I mean, I th- think your listeners heard yesterday from Councillor Tariq, and they will make up the mind in respect to the what he said to you. I think the the important thing is that hopefully now going forward that. We can come together as politicians, as leaders within Berry, the head teachers, everybody, all the stakeholders involved in this, and ask the, the local authority to fully explain, in their point of view, when it will be safe to open our local schools, what measures they will use to determine whether it's safe for them to fully open, sorry, to fully reopen, and do they intend to leave schools shut until there is a vaccine or suitable treatment? So I think these are legitimate questions that we have to ask them. Um, on the basis of the letter that was sent out. But, you know, the reopening of schools is not a political issue. It, it's a, an issue which is, uh, which we all we all want to see schools reopen in a safe uh, manner that protects p- pupils, that protects members of staff, and we can all work together, I think, to achieve that aim. Well, indeed. Again, we're all on the same side. It's, I mean, this is it. We all want yeah. children. Everyone wants children to be getting their education and for children and teachers to be safe. I mean, who's going to disagree with that? But you've joined with fellow uh, Conservative MP for uh, Bury, uh, Bury uh, Christian Wakeford. You've written a letter to the head teachers of, of all the local schools saying that the council doesn't have the power to decide when schools can reopen, saying that uh, the statement by uh, Councillor Tamil Tariq was, a, was political grandstanding and does not appear to be based on any scientific or clinical advice. Have have you had any responses from uh, either teachers, head teachers, or indeed parents in the local area? Yeah, I've had I've had um, uh, response, uh, many responses, um, and what and a, and a wide variety of views. Um, many many parents are simply want to make an informed decision regarding sending their children back based upon evidence as to whether the school environment is safe, whether the um, the procedures that that schools will put in place to protect pupils um, are suitable. So it comes back, Julia, to that that issue regarding clarity, providing information, stating what, uh, whether, uh, you know, full uh, health and safety risk assessments have been, uh, have been carried out, you know, getting to the, the bottom of whether the council has spoken to each individual school, and that information then can be fed through to parents who can make that informed decision. So, you know, I've, I've received many, many uh, emails, calls from concerned parents Many of them who are supportive of the council's position, many of them who feel that that it is it is too early to do that. But to get ourselves to a position where we get schools reopened, we need that clarity. We need to work together, and we need to make sure that parents are aware. Yep of what Berry Council's plans are for the schools yeah. in our area. I mean, there obviously there are concerns about this test and tracking app and whether or not that needs to be up and running. Those are legitimate concerns from, from people, not just politicians, but from parents. Uh, but I, one of the questions I also asked Tamar Tariq, uh, just very briefly, is um, whether or not uh, you know he was absolutely sure, and I said it was a yes or a no, and he said yes, that every child in every primary and secondary school in uh, Berry was actually getting a full day of online proper lessons like some of the best schools in this country are providing. And he said yes, they were. Is that true, James? Well, the first thing to say, Julia, is that our our teachers in uh, Berry are doing a fantastic job. Our schools are working so hard through this period of time to support children. I obviously been contacted by local residents, and that's that's not correct. But in in on the in the main, 
Julie. Our school's doing a fantastic, fantastic You say they're doing job. a fantastic job, but what, what did the local residents say? Was, was he happy? Was he or she happy with the, uh, uh, with these, for the school provision they were getting for their child? Um, I, I've received correspondence um, and calls from people who, are, who have, have concerns regarding um, the, the level of online work that their children are receiving. Um, I had a, a parent who contacted me yesterday who said the quality of work sent home for the children has been poor. Nothing is uh, submitted and mark, marked and no feedback is given. Now, that is very much uh, uh, you know, out, out in, in the main, the vast, vast, vast majority of our teachers are doing a fantastic job. So, again, individual circumstances, individual schools, they are controlled by their governing body and their head teachers. I want them to have all the information so they can make the informed decision okay. to open their schools safely. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. The ongoing rows and the ongoing problems in care homes are dominating the news a lot today, along with the uh, problems with testing and tracing and bringing primary schools back. Uh, let's talk about this with my next guest, Professor Martin Green, OBE. He's Chief Executive of Care England. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia. Thank you very much for joining us once again. Now, you have been critical of uh, some of the decisions made by the NHS that it did have knock-on effect for care homes. Just to get my uh, listeners up to speed, uh, some of the figures we've seen uh, show that uh, across the UK, we're looking at 43,000 deaths so far from coronavirus, were attributed to coronavirus or with coronavirus, uh, and 11,000 of those are in care homes. However, when you look at um, the excess deaths for this period, seasonal average would be in the period since March when we had the the beginning of the pandemic um, in this country. We are looking at a seasonal average of 22,000 deaths in care homes in this in a normal year. However, in this uh, this year, we have seen more than 53,000 deaths in care homes. That's one in 10 residents in care homes dying, whether or not it's related to care homes or not. Um, these are terrifying figures, terrifying for those of us who've got uh, elderly relatives in care homes. Martin Green, what went wrong? Well, I think, Julia, the first thing we should say is that uh, this was an unprecedented pandemic. And I think one of the things that happened at the start of it was that there was too much emphasis on the NHS and not enough emphasis on where the people at most risk were. So what we saw, we saw the fact that uh, the NHS withdrew a bit from care homes at the start of this pandemic and all the focus was put on acute hospitals. And that meant that not only when there were COVID outbreaks, there was not the support from the NHS into care homes. But also, of course, people who were in care homes were not being transferred to hospital when they had other conditions. So what you see in these very tragic figures around deaths is not only deaths from COVID, but deaths from other things that would normally have resulted in, say, a hospital admission and perhaps uh, people coming back out oh. and getting better. OK, so that that explains some of them. And of course, we it's been explained to us and actually reiterated by the Justice Secretary, Robert Buck, who was on the show a little bit earlier that actually the vast majority of, uh, of people who were elderly people who went into care homes during this period are those who were returning to the care home which you know, which is their home after being in hospital it was felt that they would be safer there um, we have had repeated statements haven't we that the NHS that no one was returned knowingly having COVID of course if you're not testing people then you're not going to know but also the, the government has said that fewer patients were um, uh, discharged from hospital uh, to care homes in this period than they would normally be discharged. How can you explain that? 
Well, I think the explanation for that, Julia, is that often people go from their care home into a hospital, they have treatment for things like a chest infection, and then they return to their care home. What was happening in this situation was that nobody was being admitted from a care home into hospital. So what we saw was we saw people being returned to care homes. We saw people who weren't in care homes coming into care homes in order to free capacity in the NHS. But I think the, the difference in the figures is about the fact that we didn't see admissions into hospital and then of course we didn't see the people returning so yes okay that that makes a lot more sense so, so this is remarkably similar to what's been happening we know across the population at large where we have seen so few people go to A&E so few people getting referred for for cancer uh, consultations and treatment and like and, and actually we may have displaced a lot of these deaths so this is just people who who, who are dying because they're not getting medical treatment we know GPs also uh, not going into care homes they're saying look you know we, we can't guarantee that we are safe to go into a care home in terms of bringing the disease in ourselves but this may itself have led to more people dying although not of coronavirus Yeah, I think that's uh, exactly right. And I think one of the challenges as well was that um, the NHS may say that they never knowingly sent people out to care homes with COVID-19. But until everybody was tested, they should not have made um, people come out of hospital. You know, what we need to remember is that a care home has people in it in a community setting, all of whom have got long-term care, long-term health conditions, underlying health needs. So that means that they are the most vulnerable category. And I think what we didn't understand at the start of this, or we didn't acknowledge at the start of this, was that we had to place a great deal of emphasis on supporting care homes in order to make sure that we didn't have significant problems and and, uh, get lots of people infected. Indeed. Well, we know, I mean, only, well, it's not only, because if it's if it's a care home with vulnerable residents, it doesn't feel like only 38% of care homes have seen a coronavirus uh, uh, infection. So, I mean, so obviously 62% have not, but that you know, that's still a very large minority, even though a minority. How much help have you actually had, though, from the NHS, from the government, from local authorities? Matt Hancock, the health secretary, was saying in the Commons yesterday, that even though he is, of course, his official title is now, at his request, health and social care secretary, that actually he doesn't have responsibility for care a lot of them are private care homes but they're under local authority jurisdiction and he said look he doesn't actually have responsibility but the government gave um, huge sums we're told a total of four billion uh, to uh, care homes uh, via the local authorities it, it, there has been an issue certainly it's been raised before by care home representatives that the uh, local authorities weren't necessarily handing any of that money over well you know, the money has gone, and I absolutely can say the Secretary of State is absolutely right to say that the money has gone, but the money has not gone to the front line of care. And what I do have a problem with is that the Secretary where, So where State, has it gone then? Sorry, where, where, if it's, it's been gone, spent... It's gone, it's gone into local authorities, and unless the Secretary of State makes it absolutely clear that this money is for frontline care, it will be diverted. Now, local authorities have got lots of responsibilities. I really fully accept that. They've also had significant
national politicians have sat and said, we've given the money. Local politicians have said, well, we haven't got enough. And in the middle of that have been people struggling to provide care. And I think, actually, this is a complete nonsense. And I would expect, never mind in my role at Care England, but as a taxpayer, that if the government is giving money for a vital service, it should go to that vital service. And it is the responsibility of government to make sure that the money they give is actually reaching the place they want it to reach, which is the front line of care. And they and they could have ring fenced it if they chose uh, if they chose to do so. Why do you think they didn't? Well, I think it's a historic thing that they always pander to this notion of localism, and they also pander because I think it's politically advantageous for politicians. National ones can always say we gave the money. Local ones can always say, oh, you didn't give enough. And it's the right. sleight of hand by politicians at both ends to make sure that the blame doesn't transfer itself to the bottom of their desk. Yeah, I think a lot of people will un- will have, understand that and have heard that many times. What about the claims? And we know some uh, care home groups are, have uh, actually you know, issued formal legal notices to their local councils saying, "Look, we're going to go bust." We seem to hear often in the in the in, in the media. Well, look, the, the, most care homes are privately owned; they're privately run. Um, uh, there are huge profits, huge huge sums of money. You know, seventy, eighty grand a year being charged for plus for for, for private residents in these these care homes that are often run by local authorities as well, um, and that they're talking about going bus a lot of people are just really confused about what you know where is all this money going and why haven't especially privately run camps been able to you know find the pp they need pay the staff enough to keep them and and uh, and be able to keep their residents safe where is all the huge sums of money that is put into care homes actually going well the first thing to say julia is that people who pay their own care pay the true cost of care but unfortunately the provision that's uh, that's bought by the local authorities is bought at a very low level and I don't think people understand that in some areas it's as low as say three pounds an hour to provide 24-hour care for people who've got serious health conditions you're providing accommodation meals activities all those things and of course what that means is that the people who are paying their own care the, the true cost of care they are, in effect, uh, enabling the local authorities to seriously underfund. They're subsidising, aren't they, effectively? Absolutely. Also, the notion that there are hundreds of millions of pounds somehow going to somebody who's sitting on a beach in, in the Caribbean is completely untrue. What we need to remember is that particularly the large groups, what they do is they, inc- they bring in investment. And no government money has gone into new care services in the last 40 years. We haven't seen any of these local authorities building brand new care homes. Uh, or, or if they have, they've been doing it under various auspices, pretending that they're coming out of, a, of, of the local authority um, in, in some kind of uh, uh, arm's length body. But the vast majority of every new service has been bought by inward investment. Now, if we don't have a system which allows people to make some money out of this, and of course, you know, the bottom line is you cannot run a company unless you make a surplus. Uh, Whether you're a charity or a company, you've got to make sure that your costs are covered and you make a surplus so you can reinvest. So I think, you know, this is not a a situation where people are making huge amounts of money. The bottom line is it's a very, very underfunded system. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio. 
Thanks for listening to today's Julia Hartley Brewer coronavirus update. Please don't forget to like, comment and most importantly, subscribe. And you can catch me live on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 till 10. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.